Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. Open your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'm going to spend a few moments, and I want to walk you through a story that I think makes this truth ever so clear. So in 2 Samuel chapter 6, you have the story of David moving the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Now, this is, um, this is a story that you have to know a little bit of background to really understand what it's all about. So in chapter 6, verse 1, the Bible says, David again assembled all the fit young men in Israel, 30,000. He and all of his troops set out to bring the ark of God from Baal, Judah. The ark bears the name, the name of the Lord of armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. They set the ark of God on a new cart. They transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart. They brought it with the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. And uh, Ahio walked in front of the ark. And David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of fir wood instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. So here's the background so that this will make sense. So the Ark of God, we call that also the Ark of the Covenant. It was a representation of the presence of God with the people of God. And so in Exodus chapter 25, God specifically told the Israelites to build an ark. And it was specific dimensions. It had specific wood that had to be used. And it had specific handles that had to be put through gold rings on the side. And it had specific ways of transport God said the only people that can transport this ark would be the Levites and they were to carry it with these poles. And then he offered a warning. He said, nobody can touch the ark. If you touch it, you will die. And so the reason this was so important to David was because the ark had been captured by the Philistines. So the presence of God. Now, look, God doesn't live in a box. I don't want a God that lives in an itty bitty box, right? God didn't live in the box, but it was, a, it was a reminder that God was with his people. And when the Philistines captured the ark and, and had it for themselves, you can imagine it was, like, it was like they captured the presence of God and God was no longer with the Israelites. Now that wasn't true, but that's what they were thinking. That was in their minds. It was a very holy uh, a, a piece of, of remembrance. And so David went to get this ark and bring it back to where it belonged in a tent set up in the city of Jerusalem. It was in a way of reestablishing the authority and the, 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 the bigness and the presence of God amongst his people. So this was a big, big deal. That's why the Bible says that he took 30,000 of his men. They traveled and as they brought it back... They were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of instruments. You ever been to New Orleans and happened to see a jazz funeral? 
So it's really cool. In, in New Orleans, a jazz funeral is when you die, your family starts marching through the streets with instruments, and then the people just start joining in, and, and they're like dancing and singing and having a party. Like, New Orleans is just a city with an excuse to party. That's all they are. Even dying is a reason to party, apparently, in New Orleans. It's really kind of cool. I hope that you do that when I die. I, I literally, I hope you strike up the band and walk around the block twice. I mean, give me at least twice, right? I mean, because it's a celebration for me anyways. So it was the same kind of thing. They were dancing in front of the ark and they were celebrating that the presence of God is back with us. Now he was already there, but we're reminded this is things are put in their rightful place within the people of God. But see, there was a problem. And the problem was, God said, this representation of my presence is also a representation of who I am. I, as God, are holy, am holy. Holy means set apart. Holy means not earthly. Holy means something totally other than us. And so God said, because I am holy, you cannot touch the ark why because it was a physical reminder that God was far more perfect and more holy than us it was a reminder that we are separated from God even though God was present we couldn't just be like yo what's up God I mean it wasn't it wasn't that kind of relationship and this ark reminded the people of that that's why they couldn't just go touch it and that's why it had to be carried in the way that it was carried by the priest but they didn't read the instructions. They either forgot what God said or they just figured they would do it a better way. Isn't it funny how we forget what God says and or we figure out a better way to do something for God? Well, the result of doing things our own way is God has to do what he says he would do. Let's go to the next verse in verse 6. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor... Uzzah reached out to the Lord, to the ark of God, and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. Then the Lord, Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence. And he died there next to the ark of God. So they built a new cart. They put the ark on the cart, and they decided, they, why would we carry it when we can wheel it, right? Work smarter, not harder, is what they were thinking. And at least they gave a new cart. So they're pushing this cart or the oxen are pulling this cart. The oxen stumbles. The cart starts to shift and it's about to fall. One of my worst fears is being at a funeral and dropping a casket. I don't know. Everybody has weird fears. That's one of mine, right? Does anybody else in the world think about that besides me? I mean, how awful that or uh, forgetting the words to the national anthem. When singing in front of a large crowd. I'm not lying. I've sung a couple of times a national anthem in front of larger crowds. And it's the scariest moment of your life. You want to know why? Because everybody panics in that moment. You go back in your YouTube and you Google all the people who messed up the national anthem. In front of hundreds and thousands of people. And the list is long. Full of very, very smart, good people. But it's that pressure. So I can understand the, 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 the angst here by moving the cart and then it falling and to be like, oh, the ark. And so Uzzah reached out and steadied it. Now, here's the thing. We don't know 
if he just didn't know or if he just figured he would give God a hand. But what we do know is the moment he reached out and steadied the ark, God struck him dead on the spot. I don't know how that happened. It could have been a bolt of lightning. It could have been, who knows? But the Bible says that he died right there next to the cart. And the next verse tells us that David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And so he actually named the place outburst against Uzzah. And it's still named that today. So David was angry. He was like, God, you overreacted. You totally went farther than you should have gone. Why in the world would you strike him dead when all he was trying to do was help save the ark? Now that is a good question, isn't it? Why did God do that? He did it because he had to do it. Because God is not a liar. God specifically, publicly declared, nobody can touch the ark. Now you might say, well, he didn't know. But let me ask you a question. If you're driving through city of Gulf Breeze and you're listening to the tunes and you're not paying attention because you're from Pennsylvania and you, you, have, you have this beautiful sunshine and you're about to get to the beach and you're rolling 65 through downtown past the Chick-fil-A. And Gulf Breeze Blue pulls you over. And you say to the officer, Officer Banks, I'm sorry, by the way, you don't want to get Officer Banks. He's a great guy, but he is, he is, he is the law, right? Officer Banks, I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I didn't even see the sign. I didn't know how fast I was going. I'm not from here. What's he going to say? You know what? That's okay. Because you didn't know. No, the truth is we all know this principle. Ignorance of the law is what? Is no excuse. The fact is, the law is the law. And truly, you should know that 65 is not the right speed to go through a city like ours. Because no city in the country allows you to go 65 in a congested area. Because common sense tells you, hey, it's dangerous to do that. The ignorance that he might have had didn't excuse him from the guilt of offending the law. And so God did what God said he would do in Exodus chapter 25. David was angry because David was looking out of his human eyes rather than out of spiritual eyes. In other words, he was thinking from a human perspective, not from God's perspective. Imagine if God would have said, you know what, I know that you touched the ark, but I'm going to give you a pass. I know that I said Nobody who touches it will live. I know I said that, but I'm just going to let you slide under the radar. Would anybody respect God after that? No. Because you know what we do as humans? We say, you know what? If this happens here, well then maybe it's going to happen here. And it would erode our confidence in who God is. The other thing we don't know here is we don't truly know what was going on in Uzzah's heart. The Bible tells us that when he reached out and touched it... He was acting irreverently. That could be an indication that in his heart, he was not even thinking about the holiness of God. He was just thinking, ah, it's just a piece of wood. It's just, it's just a piece of wood. I'm just going to keep it. It could have been. Regardless, David was angry. And then great fear came onto David's heart. The next part of the verse, verse 9. David feared the Lord that day and he said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Here's an interesting point out of this. Do you know that we can be following what God calls us to do 
And then we see God differently than he actually is. In other words, our human perspective skews the true perspective and the true nature of God. And so because of our skewed perspective, we veer from the course and we do our own thing. Or we say, you know what, I'm not going to go any farther towards the gospel on this. I'm I'm just going to come over here and park it. Does that make sense? That's what David did with the ark. The Bible says that he was not willing, verse 10, to bring the ark of the Lord to the city of David. And instead, he diverted it to the house of Obed-Edom. And the ark of the Lord remained in his house for three months. Here's the best part. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. So the ark is on its way to Jerusalem. Stumbles. Uzzah dies because God said, don't touch the ark. He touched the ark anyways. David is angry at God. So David says, I'm just going to put the ark somewhere else. I'm not going to bring it into the city because I'm afraid of the ark. He moves it over to Obed-Edom's house. And then God starts to bless Obed-Edom. Just blessing upon blessing upon blessing. I, I think something we can take from this is this. Whenever God's presence is with you, expect God's blessing. Now, I'm not talking about blessing the way we oftentimes think of it. I'm not saying that you're going to get a jag in your driveway overnight. I'm not saying that you're going to suddenly have really dapper clothes. I'm not saying that you're going to have a bunch of friends. And I'm saying that the blessings of God through his presence are things that you can't buy. It could be just the spiritual blessings of peace and contentment and joy and hope. And, you know, the fruit of the spirit. It could be just that. But I have... Uh, just from my own life experience that it's beyond that as well. It's every provision we need to do all that God calls us to do when his presence is with us. After the ark was diverted and after it stayed there for three months, after Obed-Edom was blessed over and over and over, verse 12, it was reported to King David, the Lord had blessed Obed-Edom's family and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and had the ark of God brought from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. In other words, David hears reports, hey, they're getting wildly blessed. We're not getting blessed. We got to go get the ark. He gets back on track and she goes over and this time he does it the way God commanded to do it. He probably had somebody go back in the records and say, hey, could you go read the law and tell us how we're supposed to move this thing? So they did it the right way. And as they were moving it, there was such joy. There was such excitement. I'm just excited thinking about it. I'm trying not to be too excited, but I'm just I'm excited. There, there, there was such happiness. There was such fulfillment knowing that God His presence was about to be where it was supposed to be. And the Bible tells us that as uh, uh, the ark of the Lord was coming, verse 14, uh, or excuse me, back to verse 13. David went up and had the ark of God brought from the house to the city of David with rejoicing. When they were carrying the ark of the Lord, advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. Now what we don't know is this. Some people say they took six steps, had a sacrifice, and then went on the rest of the way. But other scholars say, no, no, no. They went six steps, offered a sacrifice. Went six more steps, offered a sacrifice. Went six more steps. And so all throughout the the, the city, from Obed-Edom's house all the way to the tent of meeting, was this trail of blood from the sacrifices. Now, if that's true, then my mind goes back to the cross, the way of the Villa Della Rosa. Because when you have a sacrifice, you have evidence of a sacrifice. 
Now, why would they do a sacrifice? It was a reminder of God, your presence is with us. God, you are holy and yet you have known us by name and by face. And so we're offering to you a sacrifice to acknowledge that you're worthy of our worship. That's essentially what they were doing. But if they did it every six steps, you would have this trail all the way to the temple or to the tabernacle. But when Jesus was marched out of the city, it would have been a trail going the opposite direction. So again, I don't know if that's, I don't know if you can tie those two together or not. It's just something I was thinking through and it makes sense to me. So take that for what it's worth. This sacrifice though, verse 14, was encompassed with dancing with all his might before the Lord. The Bible says David was dancing with all his might before the Lord and he was wearing a linen ephod. Now I'm trying to ask myself this question. What does it mean to dance before the Lord with all your might? Have you ever done that? Have you ever with all of your might worshipped the Lord? Because the dancing is a representation, an outward example of what was going on inside. I'm, I'm outwardly giving to God what inside I'm about to bust at the seams to give. And by the way, the dancing before the Lord, if you go into the original Hebrew, what you have is this twirling and circling. It's this idea of this wild twirling and hopping and leaping before the Lord. He was doing this in front of the ark all the way through the city. So that the people would come out of their homes. They'd be, what is this fool doing? Why is he singing? Why is he laughing? Why is he dancing like a ballerina girl? Right? And, and so all of this is happening. And David is wearing a linen ephod. Not his kingly garments. He humbled himself. He brought himself low so that he wasn't the center of attention. But God was the center of attention. And as he was doing this, the Bible says that he was, uh, he and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark with shouts and the sound of a ram's horn. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city, Saul's daughter, Michael, looked down from a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. Now back to what it means to dance with all your might. The only thing in my mind that comes to mind is Ed Grimley. Take a moment. Dig deep. Right? You'll have to Google Ed Grimley. Don't do it now. Ed Grimley was Martin Short. And he always, he always danced like this. Right? It was the goofiest, silliest dance ever. But in my mind, it was this idea of, I don't care what you think. I don't care what I look like. There's something on the inside that's just busting out. And it's the best I got. So, quick story. Um, <clears throat> we went on a family cruise a couple years ago. And I knew that on the family cruise, when I say family cruise, all of, all of our family went on a cruise, my wife's side of the family. And I knew that because my daughters are my daughters, I knew that they were going to want dad to dance with them. I'm not talking like daddy-daughter dance. I'm talking like I'm supposed to dance halfway coordinated. So I got on the internet and I googled, learn to dance. There's all kinds of stuff to teach you how to dance. And I actually practiced my dance moves with nobody watching by, by the YouTube videos. And then we go on the cruise and I get out on the floor and I'm digging into my repertoire. 
I'm, I mean, I'm doing break dancing and all this kind of stuff. And I noticed people were looking at me. And I noticed that it was kind of like, hmm, you're not from around here, are you? <laughs> and, and I noticed that everybody else was cool and, and they, they had great flowing movements. And I was very disjointed and I was just a tall, lanky dude, right? And so when they looked at me, I felt the judgment coming from their eyes. And so I just eased off the dance floor and I let them, because my, my daughters can dance. Actually, Josh, everybody in my family can dance except for me. So I just, I just eased back and I watched because I was so embarrassed at how goofy I looked on the dance floor. You know, the truth is their judgment or their perceived judgment of my poor dance skills is exactly what we do when we stand before the Lord and other people are around. We, we don't want to be seen in a, in a bad way. We don't want people to think that we're weird. We don't want to be too excited. I mean, why would we be that excited? I mean, it's only like Jesus died for me. I was, I was destined for hell, and yet God rescued me from my sin. I mean, why would I be that excited about it, right? The truth is, we temper down our worship. We temper down our joy. We temper down our excitement. But we do that because, listen, the church is too often full of Saul's daughter. You know that the church, when I say the church, I'm talking collectively. The church is so good about tampering excitement that it doesn't take very long before people are born again, their life is changed, and then they come into the church and they're like, okay, let's just, let's, just, let's just act churchy. And so this blazing fire is turned into a smoldering stick. There is nobody, I say nobody, very rarely does somebody say, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to go light a smoldering stick. I'm going to warm myself by the smoldering stick. You know what smoldering sticks are good for? Long-term cooking overnight when nobody's around to watch or being bothered by the smoke. That's it. Nobody wants a smoldering stick. What do you want? You go by the fire. You want this blazing furnace because it gives heat and because it gives joy and because it's something that you can listen to and you can experience it. In your life, if Jesus is who you say he is because he said who he is, then he is worth all the fire in your heart. Now be careful. I'm not talking about doing something out of show. And I'm not talking about being somebody you are not. Because I know there's a difference between extroverts and introverts. And I know there are some people who are naturally more excitable than others. But I'm talking about letting some of that joy infuse your body and your life. So that it's represented on the outside. And you're not tampering it down just to meet somebody else's expectation. Is there anybody in the house today? When you're worshiping. And God leads you to lift your hand. You should lift your hand. You shouldn't wonder, hey, am I allowed to do this? Yes. You're not only allowed, but you're encouraged. You're not commanded. But if that is the way that you enter into the presence of God, you should do it. If kneeling down, prostrate before God and saying, God, I, I can't even stand before you. Do it. You know, I was actually sitting up here to, for the, the third and fourth song and everybody stood up because that, that's what you do for songs. And, and my inclination was to stand, but I had this, I was just like, I just need to rest a second. 
I just had this thought of, man, I'm just tired. I just want to, I don't even want to sing. I just want to listen. And the very first thing I thought was, what are people going to think about me sitting when everybody's standing? That was my first thought. And then I spent the next half a song battling between not worrying about what people think. I'm like, how dumb is this? Listen, if you're worried about what somebody else is doing during worship, then you're worshiping the wrong person. If you're worried about what somebody else is thinking, what somebody else is saying during worship, your, your, your attention is on the wrong thing. Now listen, I'm not saying that you need to stand. I'm not even, I'm not even recommending that you grab a, 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 a stick and a banner and start twirling all throughout the service. I'm, I'm not recommending that because we also know that the scripture tells us that worship should be orderly. Why? So that you don't become the center of attention for worship that belongs to God. So there is this understanding of I'm not by myself, but sometimes the joy of God, the joy of the Lord just has to come out. And it's your job not to judge your neighbor and it's your neighbor's job not to worry about your judgment. Does this make sense? You know what happens when when we are full of these rules with each other? It dampens the spirit. It dampens the spirit. And again, I want you to take this within context. What was going on here was a supernatural event. God's ark was coming back to its rightful place. This was a big deal. This was truly revival in Jerusalem. That warrants a spectacular result or response. When somebody is born again, when somebody stands here and says, today I receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior, we should erupt with joy. There should be whistling, there should be clapping, there should be hoo-hoo or, you know, whatever, you know, go back to the Arsenio Hall kind of thing, right? I mean, we should be so excited because the Bible tells us that when one sinner comes home, the angels in heaven throw a party. One. There's 99 that didn't do anything, but when one person comes to the Lord, all of heaven erupts in joy. There are some things worth being excited about, aren't there? Let me give you another example. By the way, when the Bible says that Saul's daughter Michael looked down and saw David leaping and dancing, she despised him in her heart. That often comes because of either jealousy or it comes because of embarrassment. Neither of which are good things for the people of God. For her, it was likely embarrassing. She actually, we know this because of the next couple of verses. Um, verse 20, when David returned to bless his own household, Saul's daughter Michael came out to meet him. Oh, I would love to have been here for this. She came out to meet David, and here's what she says. Just, just say this in your head with a sarcastic tone. How the king has exposed himself today in the sight of his slave girls and his subjects like a vulgar person would expose himself. That's pretty harsh, don't you think? I mean, she would have just been all up in his face. Oh, how the king has exposed himself today. What kind of king are you, huh? There was this feeling of embarrassment. Why? Why? Because she was in the king's house. She was Saul's daughter. 
She was part of royalty and David cheapened in her mind what royalty was supposed to be. Watch this. Because she was embarrassed, she expected him to change. In the church, there are a few people and a few giftings and a few roles that we get embarrassed by and we want them to change. There are three that I can specifically think of. In Ephesians 4, the Bible says, To the church God gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. What that means is these five functions or five roles, five gifts that he gives uh, to the people within the body of Christ have a particular purpose. All of us are good with shepherds and teachers. Why? Because shepherds are pastoral care. They, they're walking you through and, and you know, keeping you safe and keeping you, you know, feeling good. And, and the, the teachers are those who instruct in God's word. But shepherds and teachers are always looking in the mirror. The people we don't like so much are the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists. Those are the ones that we're constantly saying, would you just chill? Would you just settle down? Would you just cool your jets? Why? Because the role of the apostle is to be the missionary spirit. It's the one who's always looking for where the gospel has not yet gone. And so they're always talking about, hey, let's go there. Let's do there. Let's, let's, let's think bigger than just what we have. The prophet is the one who's always looking uh, one or two specific things. They're always talking about prayer. They're always talking about prayer. Every time a Bible study happens, they're always about prayer. Or they're always about holiness. Or they're always about usually these few certain parts of the character of God that we have to be reminded upon. Right? And the evangelist is always looking for lost people. He's always talking about the gospel. He's always mentioning the power of the gospel. Right? And so those of us who are shepherds and teachers... We don't like that because it disrupts our comfort. And so we try to tell him, would you just settle down a little bit? No, don't settle down a little bit. Because the best way for a fire to start or best way for a fire to spread is for the heat of a flame to ignite the fuel next to it. If you have a smoldering stick, you're not going to light a giant fire. I mean, you can eventually with certain conditions, but the wave, do you know that there's this principle in fire to where the fire doesn't even have to be lit on the fuel? But if this fire is so hot that the heat causes combustion of this fuel and way over here, there's a giant fire as well. Did you know that? Why not? tame the excitement and the joy of salvation because when you are on fire it burns everything around you or not everything because some people are so fuddy-duddy and wet that no matter you could use a blowtorch and they're going to catch on fire right but what it does is it it encourages and it ignites the passion in them as well why is it that we want to temper everybody down instead of letting it blaze so that Something in our hearts would be ignited. as Does that make sense? What I'm saying is the church. We don't need to say. You must look like this. You must act like this. You must think like this. You must worship like this. No we need to say the Bible gives us. A range of possibilities. And as long as it's done. Within the range of scripture. And as long as it's done with the right heart. 
And long, as long as it's done for the edification of the body, then worship. Does that make, so you hear what I'm saying, right? I'm not giving you a command to lift your hands. I'm not giving you a command to be. I'm, I'm just saying, don't put out the Spirit and don't fake the Spirit. Let God's Spirit dwell within you and be expressed in the way that God leads you to do it. So, Michael was despising David. And she tells him, you embarrassed me. In verse 21, David replied to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me over your father. This is great. This is like a zinger right here. Um, honey, it was before God that I was dancing who chose me over your father and over your father's family. That, would, that was a tough one right there, right? He said, you cho who chose me over your father's family, and I will dance before the Lord, and I will dishonor myself and humble myself even more. However, by the slave girls you spoke about, I will be honored. And Saul's daughter, Michael, had no child to the end of her days and to her death. There's a song that... Um, that sung, I will dance, I will sing to be mad for my king. Nothing more is hindering this passion in my soul. Y'all hear that before? And the thing is, if there's life inside of you, that life should come out. You should, you should be respectful of people next to you. And by the way, I'm not just talking about in here. In fact, this has very little to do with in here as much as it has to do with out there. I'm not going to say much about Jesus at work because I don't want to. I don't want to be seen as radical, right? I'm not going to. I'm not going to do certain things because I don't want people to to think I'm too religious. Listen, I'm agree, in agreement. I don't want anybody to be religious either. But I do want you to set yourself on fire and let the world come and watch you burn. Because passion. Mixed with truth. By the way, passion, zeal, same thing. Passion mixed with truth is infectious. Never shut up. Never. We have a God who's worth all the fibers of our body. This morning, I want to invite you to two things. First, if you're here and you've not ever trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, I want to invite you to do that. The Bible says that it's by grace that you're saved through faith, not of your works. You cannot be good enough to earn God's salvation, God's favor. The Bible says that if you will repent, it means turn from your sin and turn to, to the gospel, turn to Christ. God will make you a child of his own. So this morning, if you are not a believer in Jesus, maybe you've just kind of been looking from a distance and you've never surrendered your life to him. I want to invite you to do that. And then the second thing, if you're here and you have been tampering the excitement to fit into somebody else's mold, I want to just invite you to let God's, let the joy of the Lord be in you. And stop worrying about what everybody else will think or say. Think or say. In Revelation chapter 2, 
the Scripture tells us that Jesus has a charge against the church at Ephesus. He said, I know that you've been doing good stuff. You, you love me. You, you've, got, you know, you've got good theology. You've got all the things. You're doing the right actions. But, but in your heart, you've, you, you, you've fallen. You, you're just going through the motions. You're not, you're not loving me with a passion. I want to invite you, you to remember the height from which you've fallen. If you've gotten over being born again, I want to invite you just to remember that. That once you were lost, and now you're found. Again, don't, don't, don't be something for somebody else. Don't, don't do something just because somebody else is or isn't. Truly allow God to give you the joy of your salvation back. We take a moment. With every head bowed and every eyes closed, I, I wonder, do you need to surrender your life to Jesus today? What are you waiting for? What is there that's worth walking away without receiving Jesus? This morning, if that's you who's tampered the flame just to fit what everybody else says would you simply ask God to fan into flame inside of your heart the passion and the zeal for the gospel it never gets old Father I pray for you people today I pray for every person sitting in a seat standing in the back up here on stage I pray God that you would fan into flame the passion and the zeal for the gospel that we should have Lord, I ask this for the glory of God and for the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. We stand. We're going to sing a, a song. Lord, I need you. As we sing, I want to invite you just to respond. If you're part of the welcome team, just kind of hang out where you are right now. We'll dismiss in a moment. But just let God move you to the what next. Find out more about First Baptist Church Gulf Breeze at fbcgulfbreeze.org.